welcome, and thank you for joining me for this special Ghosts of Arlington one-year anniversary extravaganza, or as I have taken to referring to it, the State of the Podcast Address. I know I have said it before, but I want to start today's episode off with a big thank you to each and every one of you who have tuned in over the last year. Knowing that people out there are listening encourages me to keep going week in and week out. I have several podcasts in my personal rotation that I listen to, and I never have enough time to get to all that I want in a timely manner. It means so much to me that I have made it into your regular rotation. Even if you are not listening to this in real or near real time, it means a lot that you have picked up the podcast whenever you have. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to reach out through email, Twitter, and Facebook with questions that will make up the second half of today's celebration. But I'm going to start with a bunch of numbers and stats, so if that isn't your thing, I completely understand. You're free to leave now. No hard feelings, and we'll see you again next week. For those who are sticking around, let's get started. First things first. As of last week, I have published... 48 total episodes, made up of 46 standard episodes, one introductory episode zero, and one supplemental episode. Altogether, this equals 25 hours of content, 391 written pages in 12-point font, or about 196,000 written words. Not including anyone from the space race, I have highlighted 87 ghosts of Arlington, 22 civilians, including a prime minister of Poland, 39 soldiers, 7 sailors, 5 marines, and 5 airmen. Look, I'm not actively trying to focus on the army, it's just worked out that way, and I'm already making up for it. There won't be a single soldier during the Space Race episodes. While I know there are many high-profile, big-budget, well-advertised podcasts out there who rake in tens of thousands or more listeners each week, I am ecstatic to say that each of my episodes are receiving several dozen downloads, with a few breaking the 200 downloads mark. In the last year... Ghosts of Arlington has been downloaded more than 3,200 times. Of these 3,200 downloads, 94% have come from North America, 4% have come from Europe, and the remaining 2% are coming mostly from Asia, but a few in Africa, Oceania, and South America too. I'm going to break these numbers down a little more, and while I'm not trying to be ethnocentric or anything... I'm going to break down the U.S. numbers first, followed by the international numbers. 
Listeners have tuned in from 40 of the 50 United States and the District of Columbia, with the top 10 states being from number 1 to number 10, Virginia, Texas, Utah, New York, North Carolina, Idaho, Florida, Arizona, California, and Washington, D.C. With that said, if you could pass the show on to people living in Alaska, Kentucky, Maine, Mississippi, Montana, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, and or Wyoming, that would help me collect all 50 states. And uh, I guess this means I need to have a talk with my relatives in Maine. Outside of the United States, the top 10 countries who tune in are also from 1 to 10. Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Ireland, Spain, Canada, Japan, Israel, South Africa, and Italy. The top 10 cities that tune in are all in the U.S., but Frankfurt, Germany, you guys are number 13. I know you can crack into the top 10. Every single one of those numbers I just mentioned blows my mind. When I started this, I had no idea if anyone would listen, but you have, and I am grateful for your help honoring those interred at Arlington National Cemetery. Okay, I think it is now time to transition into the question and answer portion of the podcast. Again, thank you to everyone who wrote in with a question, and while I don't have time to get to every one, I will be able to answer most of them. The first question is a multi-part question. How much time does it take to research, write, edit, record, and produce each episode? And do you receive any help from friends and family, or is it all you? Well, I can't give an exact answer to that question because it has taken me some time to figure out that a weekly 30 or 35 minute episode is about all I can manage while not completely neglecting all of my other responsibilities. The best ballpark figure I can give is that it takes several hours to put a single 30-minute show together. Reading, research, and writing take the lion's share of the time, but even a 35-minute podcast takes about 45 to 50 minutes to record, and then I have to listen to the whole thing again to edit out all the times I trip over my own words. And add another 15 minutes or so to this whole process anytime I include historic audio clips. Those can take a while to find, and sometimes it turns out I'm looking for something that doesn't actually exist. I usually spend another hour or more throwing pictures onto the website to supplement the podcast. You may have noticed that the write-ups on the website have gotten a lot shorter over the last few weeks. I may have been overly ambitious when I started out. I still want to and like to add pictures for those wanting to see them at www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com, but for my own sanity, I'm going to continue to limit myself to just a few pictures and not much of a write-up because 
frankly, by the time I get to the website, just a day or two before the podcast goes live, I'm ready to put that episode behind me and move on with my life. Ideally, I am nearly finished with researching and writing the next episode a week out, but that isn't always the case. Now, the second part of that question asks if I have any friends or family who help out with this process. No, this is an independent labor of love, and I'm the show's researcher, writer, producer, and host, which is a lot of hats to wear, but looks really good on a business card. Just just kidding. All of that would look terrible on a business card, which is why mine just say host and the other things can be brought up as needed. Okay, question two. How do you pick your topics for the podcast? How do you decide who you're going to talk about? When I initially had the idea for this podcast about three or so years ago, I was spending a lot of time walking through Arlington. For me, the cemetery is a peaceful, meditative place that allows me to reflect on my own life and put what is going on in the world around me into perspective. As I was doing this, I also noticed that I recognized a lot of names on the headstones, especially in the older sections of the cemetery. At some point, it also dawned on me that each headstone was a life's story, the dash between a birth date and a death date. I started writing down names from headstones and learning more about many of these stories. Usually, I just look back at this list to decide who I want to talk about next and what story that individual or a group might help me tell. If I was more organized, I might try to do things in a more chronological order or evenly distribute my focus across the different branches of the military, but I am not that well organized and I don't usually think that far ahead. Question 3. What was your initial motivation to do this podcast? How long can you sustain it? I truly believe that as long as someone's name is still spoken, someone's life is still remembered, they are not truly gone. Many people buried at Arlington are well-known historical figures, but the vast majority are people who serve diligently with great distinction while doing some incredible things that the world at large has never heard of. I think of Joe Byerly when I say things like that. His is an amazing story to jump into Nazi-occupied France twice, only to be captured by the Germans after D-Day three times, uh, before escaping east and fighting with the Russians, before returning to the United States. If it hadn't been for my son, I might not have ever heard of him, but I am honored that I was able to pass his life story along. As far as how long I can sustain this, right now it's a matter of enjoyment. I plan on continuing to make the podcast as long as I enjoy the process, and while it is a lot of work, it is also fun and rewarding, and I am enjoying myself. It also helps that I have a job that allows me to find the time I need to research and record and to cover the minor monthly expenses associated with making a podcast. It's also helpful that Mrs. Ghosts of Arlington is supportive of the whole venture, 
And for that, my dear, thank you for letting me dedicate so much time to this crazy hobby of mine. Question 4 asks, what is the worst thing that has happened during the first year of the podcast? That one is easy. Back in November, I recorded a two-part series on the Arctic explorers Robert Peary and Matthew Henson. While I was recording the second episode, everything sounded fine, but when I went back to edit the sound file, it was obvious that something had gone wrong. The audio on the file was incredibly choppy throughout. I had to scrap the whole recording and start over fresh. Looking back, that episode has a runtime of 33 minutes, which means I likely lost about two hours of work. November also happened to be the busiest month I'd had at work in a year and a half, and I really didn't have that extra two hours to spare, but it all worked out in the end. Oh, and and as I'm saying this, I also just remembered that... uh, I lost another audio file at one point. It just disappeared right after recording. It was either one of the uh, one of the Harlem Hellfighter episodes or Abner Doubleday episodes. So that was fairly recent. I am now much more conscientious when it comes to saving files before I start to edit them. And I have time for one more question. And I really like this final question. It asks, what are the best three places you have visited related to any of the episodes. The first place I'm going to mention will take me back to episodes 21 and 22 and the series called The Top of the World, the Peary and Henson episodes I just mentioned. Way back in 2012, before I even knew what a podcast was, I got back from my second deployment to Afghanistan. This is when I was with the 10th Mountain Division and living in upstate New York. Now, I have a goal to make it to all 50 states in my lifetime, and New York is the closest I had ever been to New England, so I thought it would be fun to take the family on a tour of New England as they reconnected with me and I reconnected with them. My kids were six, four, and one year old at the time, so most of the trip consisted of simple things like, hey, we're passing by the Beardsley Zoo, the largest zoo in New England when we pass through Connecticut. Let's spend the day there. Or the kids might like to take the ferry across Lake Champlain when we head back to New York, so let's go that route. And of course, when we went through Vermont, we toured the Ben and Jerry's ice cream factory. We also made it up to Brunswick, Maine to visit the campus of Bowdoin College, where one of my all-time favorite military commanders, Civil War Medal of Honor recipient Joshua Chamberlain, was an alumnus and later president after the war. Next to the campus is a museum dedicated to Chamberlain that I was hoping to visit, but it was February or March in Maine, not quite peak tourist season, and the museum was open by appointment only at that time. We were only going to be in town for really about a day, and the woman running the museum was going to be out of town at the same time, so I couldn't visit there, but we did get to see Chamberlain's grave at the nearby cemetery, and Bodden's library, named after Bodden alum's 
Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had a small exhibit which included Chamberlain's Medal of Honor and looked like a Pandora-style charm bracelet that he had made for his wife Fanny. Each charm link in the bracelet pertained to a battle or campaign that he had participated in. So, how does this relate to Arctic exploration? Well, while on campus, we found that the college is also home to the Peary Macmillan Arctic Museum. As you may recall, Macmillan accompanied Peary on many of his Arctic trips, and both were bought in alumni. This museum was where I first learned about Matthew Henson, the African-American Arctic explorer who was Peary's right-hand man for nearly 20 years. Learning about Henson's contribution to early Arctic exploration was really cool, and after being diminished to a minor background role at best, or completely forgotten altogether for decades, he has been rediscovered and properly credited and recognized in the last 20 or so years. It was several years after I visited that museum that I visited Peary and Henson's graves, which today are side-by-side in Section 8 at Arlington. The next location I'm going to mention is the Hoover Dam in southern Nevada, not too far outside of Las Vegas on the Colorado River. I got to visit the dam in September 2021 with my dad. Part of the museum exhibit at this engineering marvel talks about the massive undertaking that was building the dam in the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression. While these exhibits were impressive, they have nothing to do with Arlington. The Colorado River and Hoover Dam's connection with the cemetery is found in Episode 20, The Great Unknown, which came out just a few weeks after my dam visit. See what I did there? Before the Colorado River was harnessed and portions turned into reservoirs, it was wild and ran unchecked from tributaries in Wyoming southwest to the Gulf of California in northern Mexico. As one of the few remaining unmapped and unexplored regions of the United States, at least by its European population, one-armed Civil War veteran John Wesley Powell organized an expedition to map the region. Many thought it was a suicide mission, but Powell got the volunteers he needed gathered the required boats, provisions, and other equipment, and the group set out, and nearly met disaster just miles after starting. Over the course of the next several months, boats would sink, provisions and equipment would be lost, and a few members of the expedition would walk off into the desert, never to be seen again. But in the end, this intrepid anthropologist and his group became some of the first to see the Grand Canyon and other massive canyons along the Colorado and to map the region. It nearly killed the survivors. It also made them all national heroes. It was Powell's findings from this and subsequent expeditions that led some people to think it would be possible to populate this harsh desert region if water from the river could be diverted for agriculture purposes. Today, Lake Powell in southern Utah and Lake Mead at the Hoover Dam have fulfilled that dream and turned large swaths of the southwestern United States into oases, 
including the previously sparsely populated Southern California, now one of the most densely populated regions in the country. And for my third location, I'm going to choose one of the most consecrated sites in the United States, the Gettysburg Battlefield. I have only visited Gettysburg twice, a number I need to greatly increase, and soon. And aside from making the pilgrimage to the cemetery Lincoln dedicated, and the portion of Little Round Top that, on the second day, Chamberlain and his Mainers defended, I also stood at the spot, as near as historians can tell, where American scoundrel Dan Sickles lost his leg in front of his headquarters at the Trossel Farm, next to the salient he created at the Peach Orchard. The place I talked about in episodes 25 and 26 of the American Scoundrel series. I have seen the ground he foolishly ordered his troops to occupy, and discussed how, if a few small things had gone differently, it is conceivable that the entire Union line could have been split, putting the Confederate Army between the Union Army and Washington, D.C. Both of my Gettysburg visits came before I was really familiar with the events of episodes 35 through 40, the Abner Doubleday story arc, and everything that Doubleday did on day one of the battle as an impromptu corps commander to delay a much larger southern force until northern reinforcements could arrive and secure the high ground around the city. I have walked the open ground of Pickett's Charge from the third day, but would now love to see the small clump of trees near the center of the Union line that Doubleday and his division held. But I do know enough about tactics, politics, and diplomacy to recognize that it would have made final victory more difficult and costlier in both lives and treasure. And though this wasn't asked, I'm going to throw it in anyway and say that the location I most want to visit right now that has a connection to the Ghosts of Arlington podcast is Dry Tortugas National Park in the Florida Keys. If you recall way back in episodes 5 and 6, Montgomery Meigs, the father of Arlington National Cemetery, built the pre-Civil War fortification there. And yes, I want to see the fort, but I also really want to snorkel or scuba dive at the site. I have managed to go on longer than I thought I would with this episode, so I really need to wrap things up. What is next for Ghosts of Arlington? I plan to continue the space race. I'm almost finished with Project Mercury, but still have the Gemini program, the Apollo program, and the Space Shuttle eras to get to. But before I do that, I am going to take a week off to commemorate Memorial Day and to celebrate my anniversary. While this week marks one year of the podcast, it also marks many more years married to Mrs. Ghosts of Arlington. But I will return with a new episode in two weeks. I know I keep saying this, but I want to thank everyone who has tuned in over the last year, and an extra special thank you to those who have left reviews and ratings for the podcast, 
and for those who have and continue to recommend the show to friends. Word of mouth is the most helpful thing for a small podcast like this one, but with your support, I know it will continue to grow. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that this one-year celebration falls on Memorial Day. That isn't a coincidence. I launched the podcast on Memorial Day last year because I thought it would be a meaningful time to begin a series looking to honor those who have given their life in the service of their country. Historically, only a small percentage of the U.S. population has served or is serving in the military, and an even smaller percent is interred at Arlington National Cemetery. And of that small percent, only a handful gave, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, their last full measure of devotion in the service of the country. It is not appropriate to say Happy Memorial Day. It is not a day for celebration, but a day for contemplation. As I contemplate today, as I remember those I personally know who have fallen in battle, and think of the many others I did not know, but who have done the same, I am going to appreciate an ideal they fought for and an ideal they, in part, allow me to enjoy. Today, I will carry them with me while surrounded by Purple Mountain's majesty in Shenandoah National Park, hiking to a picturesque waterfall with my family. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.